Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom, the kingdom, yes it is, gotta spread the word. With you no good and camp, you're listening to the and campaign's church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, the right reverend Christopher Butler. Chris, how you feeling, man? Oh, I'm doing real well. How are you? I can't complain. Now, something I had a conversation with my father uh, a couple of days ago and something came to my attention that I wasn't aware of. So my understanding is after that conversation, Chris, and you, you, you spoke to my father, apparently, like we're like play cousins. Yeah. Because man. as I under, play cousins, and for those of you who don't know what play cousins are, you can go to Urban Dictionary or somebody who <laughs> might know what it is. But we're like play cousins because it's my understanding that our parents, my father and your mother, actually went to the same high school for a while or something like that. Went to the same high school. Uh, Providence is Providence St. Mel now. I think it was just Providence. Uh, High school. Yeah, it was Providence Saint and St. Mel. They were two separate high schools, one yeah. male, one female, and they both came together. I think that's yeah. how it happened. Yeah, yeah. So, and it was like right around the same time, too. So it's legit. It, it's a small world, man. It is a, it's a very small world because we both, we've already talked about, I think we talked about before, they're both from the west side of Chicago. Uh, and come to find out that, that we're play cousins. Our parents went to the same high school. Ain't that something? Well, Chris. Uh, let me let me say this, man. We have a very special guest uh, with us today. We have Connecticut State Representative Trinae McGee. Uh, she'll be here talking with us uh, about the abortion conversation. We know, as we talked, as I talked about last week, that the Dobbs decision, which would uh, overturn Roe versus Wade, was leaked. Uh, that's a big deal for a number of reasons. But we know that it started kind of a firestorm. Uh, within American politics, we know that the Democrats in, in Congress uh, tried to pass a pass a law um, that would basically uh, codify uh, Roe versus Wade that failed uh, today or earlier this week. So there's a lot going on. And it's something that Christians need to be able to think through, I think, on their own terms. One of the mistakes I think we make, Chris, and we talk about this all the time, is Christians really just basing their opinion on really serious, complicated moral issues on a conservative or progressive framework. And that's something we don't want people to do. So we brought a representative, uh, Trinae McGee, in here to have a conversation about that. And we're going to introduce her in a second. But before we do that, as always, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute. Uh, we want to shout them out for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. You know, even before, you know, since they've come on and, and, and given us some support and become a partner Nothing has changed about how how we talk or what we talk about on this podcast. And not every sponsor 
is 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 um, one who will do that for you. So we appreciate that. Uh, we obviously wouldn't uh, accept anything less, but it's good to have partnership. So it's time to get into it, man. As usual, folks, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. Again, we are here today with Connecticut State Representative Trina McGee. She is one of the youngest black women to be elected to that state's legislature. She is pro-racial justice. She is pro-life. She is a Christian. She's worked uh, with the Ann Campaign's Whole Life Project. And I personally think, this is my personal opinion, that she is a rising star that all of y'all should know about. And we have to give platform to more voices like this. Uh, very important. Uh, Representative McGee, how are you doing today? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm so excited to be here. Uh, I admire the work that both of you do. The Ant Campaign has made it very, uh, makes it very easy for me um, to do the work that I'm doing. Very encouraging, especially to see people like you do the work that, that you're doing, that we've always done, you know, since the beginning of time. So I really appreciate you. And I thank you for creating a platform for people like myself to, to, to tell my story, tell my story. Oh, that you. is huge. I mean, and I know a lot of our supporters are, are glad to hear that, that somebody who's actually in office, uh, somebody who's doing a lot of good, somebody, again, who's a rising star is is encouraged by the Ann campaign. And I'll tell you uh, that we are certainly encouraged by you as well. So this is this is go- just going to be an exciting uh, conversation. And again, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to thank join you. us and have a conversation with us. Of course. Very much so. So, so let me say this. My first question, I'm going to add a little context to it. Um, but I want your opinion on something. Uh, Representative McGee, there seems to be a coordinated effort, and in my opinion, really a revisionist effort to make the pro-choice stance appear to be the authentic position of the black community. Right. I think I think there's there's a design to kind of make that happen, whether it's the truth or not. Now, some leftward faith leaders are even getting into the effort themselves from the pulpit to kind of push this narrative forward. And we know the old narrative, right? Old white conservative men want to control women's bodies and those who care about black women and care about poor poor black women, especially must be pro-choice. We actually heard this, you know, kind of from Janet, Janet Yellen a little bit earlier this week, too. In my opinion, now it's a it's an overly simplistic and very flat narrative, but it's hard to deny that it's somewhat effective right now. Representative McGee, as a black woman, why do you reject that narrative and and give us your story about how you've how you got into the pro life into pro-life advocacy? So firstly, I'd like to say um, a lot of those who are telling us where we should stand politically, um, ideolo- in our ideologies, um, in our belief system, they don't look like us. Um, they don't look like us. And I think that they've been erected in their own minds and in their own communities and on all in in so many different platforms to be the vocal point of our community to be the ally for our community and i've realized that even in you know all of its progressivism or conservatism or whatever angle of it is people who think they know what's best for us better than us <laughs> so um i became politically involved when I was actually 16 years old. I started working at the election polls. I was just volunteering. I remember um, volunteering at the the primary when when the elections, when uh, Trump and Hillary were facing each other. 
And I always had a passion for policy, but I didn't quite yet know that it was policy. I had a passion for um, history, government were always my favorite subjects in school. Um, but I started acting when I was three years old by set by five, I earned my SAG card. And that's always what I thought that I would be doing. I went to college for acting. Um, and it wasn't until January of 2019 when I was soon to sign a contract with a really big agency. And, um, I just spiritually didn't feel right about it. And I remember thinking to myself, I never got so close to anything I ever wanted and it didn't feel right. So I fasted, I prayed, which what which is literally what my church was doing at the time anyway. Two weeks later, I you know, I said, God, like knock me off a donkey, like make it clear to me what it is you want me to do. And two weeks later, I was invited to join my town's DTC. Um, and I felt like that's where I was supposed to be. Shortly after that, I was asked to be on the, my town city council. I wrestled with that. From March, I said yes in July. I started canvassing in August. By the grace of God, I won the primary in September, and I was sworn into the council on December 1st of 2019. It's it's funny because even in the political advocacy work that I've done, it's just a huge part of who we are as a people. It's a part of our, it's in our blood, community, and, and the church has always been such a strong pinnacle of community, shelter, um, stopping violence, ending violence, protests, um, lawfully, beautifully, civilly. Um, and so, uh, like it was just, it didn't feel like it was anything I was elected to do. I felt like I was just doing what I was raised to do. My grandmother ran for office in the seventies. She lost by only 17 votes. So I always say I was the blossoming of her seeds. She always said, I wondered who would carry that on. We just didn't know it would be me. Um, and so September of last year, my former state representative, um, had been prosecuted in trouble for having stolen over $600,000 in COVID funds. And um, prior to that, uh, a woman came up to me and said, you would make a great state representative. And I laughed at her. Like, I was like, heck no, I had just opened up a business. I have a studio for kids. I teach acting. I was like, I can't do that. And so, you know, the, the door opened up for me and someone had given me a word. It was actually my mom. And she just said, God told me to tell you, don't abandon the work for the work. And I don't know what that meant. And I still am learning, but I knew that a part of my work was politics. Um, so I threw my name in the hat. December 14th was my special election. I, we had four weeks to run an election. The House Democrats really didn't want to help or support me. The House Republicans obviously didn't want me there because they wanted my opponent in there. And um, I won by like 101 votes. Um, and throughout that time, I had done an interview where you know, headlines, you know, is Connecticut big tent enough to support an anti-abortion candidate? I think what the House Dems learned and just the House learned period is that abortion clearly isn't a top priority for the black community. Um, and it definitely wasn't a deterrence for me being elected. And so um, December 14th, I won the election. December 22nd, I was sworn in. Um, first black rep from West Haven, you know, youngest black woman in the house. I'm the young, like there are no women in the house in their twenties. There are a couple guys, but, um, you know, but like I said, it really is by the grace of God. And it wasn't until I was on my campaign trail where a flash before my eyes had come and it was the pro-choice pro-life debate in school. And I was 14. I was a freshman in high school and they, my teacher had just split the room. You're pro-life, you're pro-choice. And my classmates picked me to advocate for the pro-life side. And I debated it, like debated it, 
And then after we won and he was like, I don't think the pro-life side has ever won in this room before. So I think back to that and I'm like, you know, there are so many different things along my life that really helped to prepare me to know where I'm supposed to be in this. And, you know, the fall of 2019, that's when God gave me like a deep passion and burden for the pre-born. And I knew it was from him. I knew it was from him because I'm like, this isn't anything I would have signed up for. Um, But it has been rewarding. And I'm just ready for the challenge. I'm I'm so ready for it. I'm a little bit of a riot. So I'm, you know, I'm ready for it. And it's been, um, it's, it's hard. It has been as positive, way more positive than it has been challenging. No, that's good. I mean, you, you've obviously, you know, God has obviously blessed you and put you in this position for a reason. Uh, it seems like you have the, the energy and the right mentality for it. It takes, you know, a special person to be in that position. One of the only women in that legislature, one of, you know, a Democrat and pro-life. Not everybody can stand up and be bold within that. And you've done that. And so we appreciate that. Mm-hmm. But before I pass it to Chris to give you, to ask you a question, I want to point out one of the things that you said that I thought was really real, which was that the church has a legacy of, of this kind of social action. Uh, You said that your your family has a legacy of action and we need to step into that legacy because that legacy has always been unique. It's never been controlled by the left or the right. And so when I see Christians who go into politics trying to fit into one of those two and say, I got to be like one or the other, uh, or I see black leaders uh, taking talking points from one or the other and, and, and using them in the pulpit, it's really heartbreaking. And, and so I, I just uh, I just want to say this again. You are encouraging to all of us and just keep doing what you're doing because more sisters and more Christians in general just need to see what you're doing and kind of do it in the same way. Chris, go ahead and ask questions, please. Yeah, I mean, just one, I want to say thank you again, uh, Trinae, for, for sharing uh, this, your story. I mean, it's it's so inspiring uh, to me and I, I think to our listeners as well. Uh, so now you've been uh, in the legislature and have already taken some courageous uh, votes in the legislature. How is that experience? Um, and I almost want to ask you, uh, you know, like, how should, how should we be praying for you in terms of staying in the legislature and, and, and having to take those bold stands, especially in this moment when, you know, Dobbs is coming and, uh, you know, the National Party wants to make this the, the midterm message. How should we be praying for you? Thank you very much. Uh, well, the first thing I want to say is that um, the, well, I could say pro-abortion because there are people who don't even consider themselves pro-choice anymore. They're pro-abortion. So there are many pro-abortion activists. I just heard this today who were preparing for the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Um, I had heard someone say that they were at an event where in 2019, a big pro-abortion activist said, listen, Roe is going to fall. And so I think pro-abortion activists have been prepared for it. I don't think we as a body of Christ have been and still are not. I think a lot of us are afraid to engage in this conversation. Um, Secondly, I um, am am immensely encouraged by my constituents. Um, Just the other day, many of them received a text from my primary opponent mentioning my pro-life Democrat stance. And when I talk to my constituents, so many of them are like, okay, yeah, we're pro-life too. And I think what people are now realizing, and I don't know why it's taken them this long, is that we as Democrats, first of all, we as Democrats all don't think the same. And we consider ourselves a big tent party, sorry. And so we all don't think the same. Secondly, we as Black people, we are not a monolith. I like to say we are a mosaic, but literally in our DNA and in in the foundation of who we are has always been family-oriented. We have slavery, 
You know, we fought for our families to stay together. People didn't want their babies thrown over boats. Um, you know, even in our Negro spirituals and our hymns, it is it is not only songs of life and, and surviving the struggle, but hope. So we are a people of family. We've always been that way. Um, we, we are also a people of, listen, raise my child if I can't, or the community comes together to raise our children. That's how we are as people. And so I, I think, um, I've taken, I've, you know, voted a certain way this, this term. And one of the things that I, I felt led to really call out was this idea that, like I said, progressives believe we know what's, they know what's best for us than us. And the way of selling that bill was to create access for black and brown women. That was actually the first reason why they wanted the bill to pass. And I'm like, the clinics are in our communities. Like, we don't lack access. So I've never heard a black woman say they've lacked access to abortion. I don't, I've never even heard a black woman who's not in politics refer to it as reproductive rights. We just say abortion or not. Um, and so the ways in which I would love for um, you all to pray for me is just to pray for um, protection, um, which God has maintained and kept, and that people's eyes are open. I really... Um, I, I try to do this work compassionately because you know what? Some people just don't know. They don't know. And I always say two things to young people. You have to be called to do this work and have a deep passion for it. But you almost have to have a secret, like something that you know that nobody else in the world knows and you want the world to know because it's the truth. And I think that that's a strong driving force for why I continue to do this work. So just pray that God um, continues to give me the stamina to share that secret that he's given me with everyone around the world. Amen. We'll certainly be praying for you. Um, let me let me ask you this. Um, most of the pro-choice people that I know um, have the best of intentions. They seem to have the best of intentions. I think many of them really do care about women. Um, and, the, and the pro-choice position seems very compassionate. It seems very compassionate as long as you disregard the life of the baby. What would you say to show people to show people that the pro-life or whole life position is actually the more compassionate stance? So um, really, really great question. So um, majority of those who are advocating for resources for both mom and baby are pro-life. Um, right now, the pro-choice movement has taken a switch. Um, I mean, from tweets that were once like being a mom, you're a superhero to now being a mom is a burden. Um, and, and just to be distinctly clear, uh, the pro-choice platform is just that it's pro-choice. It's not pro-choices. And so there is no extension of things outside of abortion right now. Right now, for the past, I would say since because Hillary Clinton just took this pro-choice platform on in, in 2016, I think it's very new to the Democratic Party, which pushed out a lot of pro-life Democrats because there are many pro-life Democrats. Um, but but when they took this platform on, it became extreme. It went from safe, legal and rare to extreme. Um, and so I think. One of the things that I think is so important about the pro-life movement and, and that I love to see is number one, within the pro-life movement, I have seen people of all sorts of backgrounds, sexual orientations, religions, faiths work together to provide resources for women and give up some of the things that they they desire for their lives because they want what's best for our communities. 
I've seen pro-life people come out of their pockets. Um, a lot of pregnancy centers, like for example, in the state of Connecticut, pregnancy centers are not funded by the states, but abortion facilities are. And there are such strong stipulations on pregnancy centers. And I've explained to people with even within my district, like, listen, these centers are volunteer funded. And the the shortage of baby formula, I mean, you can walk into a, a pregnancy center and get baby formula. They've kept these things stacked and stocked for months now. And these are not people who get paid. Some of them may, some of them I know for sure don't. And so they dedicate their lives to holistically um, tackling uh, housing challenges, um, food challenges, food insecurity, um, clothing, all of those sorts of things that I think um, has not only proves the compassionate basis of the pro-life movement, but also makes clear that we do care about the mom. Um, we realize that if we empower moms, then they will be more inclined to make decisions to keep their babies. And especially within the black community, uh, a, a lobbyist said this to me. She said, I don't know what these women are talking about. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, having an abortion was the most traumatic thing that ever happened to me. It was not empowering at all. And so pro-life activists are, are advocating for post-abortive counseling and post-abortive resources. Um, and I think we are in such a strong position right now to really reframe and reshape the pro-life movement in its entirety and kind of debunk this idea that it's always been super white and male. That's who medias want to get attention. Um, you know, but I mean, Dolores Greer, and I mean, even, even Jesse Jackson, I mean, before the feminist movement, um, sort of gripped the NAACP, um, many members within the NAACP were dead set against abortion because they saw it as genocide, which in its inception, it was and still is. Um, and so I think we have a really great, this is a great opportunity for us to really reframe this entire industry and what people see it to be. Wow. So there are certainly, um, I love the way you're, you're mentioning about uh, a lot of the, the positive things that are happening inside the pro-life movement. Um, for sure, there are you know, elements within the pro-life movement uh, that are not as compassionate toward you know, uh, the needs of, of moms, you know, yeah. the, you know, e even to the extent of sort of shaming uh, and being discompassionate toward women who have had abortions, uh, what would you say uh, in this moment where we do get an opportunity to reshape uh, this pro-life movement, what would you say to pro-life folks uh, who see those gaps, maybe even have lived them some in their own uh, advocacy, uh, what would you say to, to them in, in this moment of, of kind of reclaiming this movement? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I had this experience where I like stood in the corner um, while I saw people outside of Planned Parenthood that it, that's just not my way of advocacy. I don't, I don't demonize or I, I, you know, I, everyone's advocacy is different, but I do think we have to really, we have to change our approach. Um, and abortions are on a significant decline. It is such a shrinking environment. I know people get mad at that, but I think nationwide it's, in, it's decreased by 30%. In the state of Connecticut, it's decreased alone by 33%. Eight abortion facilities have closed over the past decade in Connecticut. And I think it's also a, and I had to, I shared this with some of my colleagues, is like a testament of the times is that millennial women have access to so many different resources. And Millennial women are making so many smart decisions from finances to even marriage that right now, while millennial marriages are increasing, 
we, we, we have so much more. And so our priorities are so different. And so while we begin to like, like I see images with hangers and, you know, which I've had to explain to people, you know, like even <laughs> like, uh, like with Roe versus Wade, if it overturns, abortion doesn't go away. You know, it will look different because it's in the hands of the state, um, you know, but it, you know, it doesn't necessarily go away, you know, but there's this, there's this old, and I, 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 I say this respectfully, but most of those who are on my social media with hangers are women who are like not even of childbearing age. Um, when I talk to women my age, the first thing they talk about is student loans. And so I think we're in an environment where times have changed so much. Um, women are not going to abortion facilities as much anymore. The 54% of abortions are done via the abortion pill. They are mailing, mailing those to women's homes. And so times have really begun to change. And I think the way in which we can take control of the media, um, shift the conversation and empower women to keep working and best save your money so that you are financially stable when you're marriage and when you're married so that when you do have children, right? You're able to provide for for them. Those are the things that we're talking about. Um, and I also think the, 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 the day of, of our Republican brothers and sisters and colleagues using uh, race as a means to justify abortion, but then not wanting to talk about that anywhere else. Um, because if we don't have discussions around policy and how there are discriminatory things that happen in other places, then we really don't want to talk about being, you know, then we're, then we're really not addressing being pro-life. Um, because like, for example, when I was sworn in and my story kind of got out there, I got, a, I got three calls from three different young moms in the same month and all of them had their babies, but all of them needed housing. So they weren't calling about termination. They wanted their babies. They needed somewhere to stay. And so if my colleagues across the aisle don't see the importance of that, then how can we really have this pro-life discussion, especially as someone who really is consistent life ethic from the womb to the tomb? All of these things are extremely important. Um, and then to my progressive you know, colleagues who um, champion extreme policy because they think that's what we want. I mean, I think it's telling that in Minnesota, when they put defund the police on the ballot, the white people in the suburbs voted in favor of it and the blacks voted against it. And so I think we have extreme laws being made. I saw a post, you know, the men should be making laws about women's bodies. And I'm like, but some of the most aggressive abortion laws come from men. Um, they come from men, you know, and so it, it takes a man to have a, have a baby. So we can't alleviate men of their responsibility. We just have to um, find ways to work together in this. And obviously, definitely, I think, to what's, which is important to listen to women um, and champion what women really want. I think if we did surveys around the state of Connecticut and around the nation, we asked women what they want. Women want more. Women want so much more than abortion. Um, I think that has been the cheapest way out for our government. Um, it's been the best way for, for political camps to be campaigns to be funded. Um, it's a $2 billion, um, you know, entity. Um, I saw something that talked about a big, huge abortion facility, like Planned Parenthood being built. I don't remember where, but it looked like a hospital. And I'm looking, but, but like out of, out of the same mouth of this person, she says, but abortions are decreasing, you know? So I think people are holding on to things that are just no longer needed. And I think abortion facilities like Planned Parenthood are trying to ally themselves with other communities that they think will help to elevate why they're still, 
you know, important rather than rather than a change is coming and millennial women and Gen Z women want a little more. Girls want more, you know, so. This gives us the opportunity to expand our climate justice conversation as black people, because these young activists, black and brown, love climate change. I think it's time to talk about student loans, um, starting businesses um, and champion student uh, loan cancellation, because right now black women are impacted by that more than anyone because black women are more educated by by gender and race. You know, so I think um, that has a lot to do with where we're, where we're shifting to. So we can really take a whole life approach and people are waking up to, you know, these industries that say they're for black and brown women, but use us. They're waking up. And and I think even if a woman were to walk into an abortion facility, uh, especially a woman of color, with all that's out there, they are aware of the history of some of these things that have set themselves up in our community. And so I think there's some people kind of like looking at some of these facilities sideways, um, especially when you see the number of people coming in and out and that, you know, they're always uh, black. This guy on TikTok, and I encourage you both, if you haven't, I know you might probably have, but go on TikTok. I mean, black girls are up there like, listen, like we love y'all white women, but we not out there protesting with y'all because this energy was nowhere near voting rights. This energy was nowhere near Sandra Bland. I saw a woman say, I'm going to be baking and knitting and and gardening. Y'all could go out there and scream. But this black guy was, is a, was, was a security guard at a, at an abortion facility. And he said that he was near his work and didn't go home. Um, in the wee hours of the morning, because it would have he would have gotten there late. He parked in the garage of the abortion facility and he slept. When he got up, it was three in the morning, and he he like looked in front of the clinic, and it was like all these black cars. And he goes into the abortion facility, and he said they were wealthy white women who were getting abortions at three in the morning. That the facility opened up hours before for wealthy white women. And that day he was fired. Like his manager let him go because he had kind of found out a recipe like a secret. Um, And so throughout the daytime, we see young black girls be humiliated. You know, some are coerced, some are forced, trafficked, go into these facilities. But then at the wee hours of the morning, white women and like Escalades are going and seeking there. So I think they've needed us for a long time to leverage why, you know, why these things are important for our community. Whoa, whoa, she just dropped the mic on us. Well, uh, she is biblical, she's informed, she's courageous, and she's leading. We will be right back with Representative Trinae McGee on the Church Politics Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend. Uh, Christopher Butler. We also have a special guest, Connecticut State Representative Trinae McGee. We ended off talking a little bit about policy, and I want to go into that again. I want to go into policy when it comes other policy outside of access to abortion 
um, when it comes to this whole issue? What are some of the other issues surrounding it? But let me start with um, something Elizabeth Brunig wrote in an article on abortion and policy in The Atlantic. It was entitled, Nothing Beautiful Survives the Culture War. And she starts the article off by saying this, America is a much harder place to be a, to be a child than it has any excuse to be. A much harder place to have and raise a child than it has than it has any possible reason to be. It's hard to find a politician who will disagree with either proposition and harder yet to find one with any intention of doing anything about it. When it comes to the crucial business of caring for children and families, our country is an international embarrassment. American children suffer in ways children living in countries of comparable wealth and development do not. More kids live in relative poverty. More babies die. More grade schoolers routinely miss meals. And American parents, particularly American mothers, suffer too in ways our international counterparts do not. Our maternal mortality rates are much higher. Our options for taking leave to give birth and recover and recover from it are much more limited. Our resources for, uh, for support are radically circumscribed. Our birth rate is as low as it's ever been. And a rising share of childless young adults in the United States now report that they do not ever plan to have children. This, I think she sets up, up very well the need for policy. Now, when she talks about no politicians are doing anything, I think she's talking about on a federal level. Uh, but but Representative McGee, talk to us about what type of policies would be helpful and, and why we just can't get anything done uh, on a kind of national level to, to move this forward. And we just talk about access. Yeah, um, I think in some ways um, it's just where our priorities have been and where they haven't been. Um, I know one thing in Connecticut that we've been talking about and really the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus has been talking about wanting to champion is baby bonds. Um, and, and setting up a financial structure for a baby so that when they are of age, they have money. Um, there has been statistics proven several times that when a person is, is invested in before they are conceived, um, by the time they're older, they are more successful because they have financial resources. So that's one thing that we've been talking about in the state of Connecticut. But even our educational systems, uh, when we see the way in which they haven't been funded, we, I mean, we've been, we've been defunding, um, you know, our educational systems for decades and we've put money into other things that I think have elevated people's desire and greed for power, um, people's desire and greed for bigger platforms, bigger stages. Um, you know, sometimes I feel too honest for politics because I just sincerely want to help people. Um, and, and, and understanding that I have authority and power is to help people you know, not for my own gain. And I think we haven't put, we, we clearly have made it so difficult for um, women to even think about having children that right now, I think I saw, I think actually in this article, it said that, um, that our like birth rates are low, extremely low, lower than they've ever been, you know, but then you look at Spain who gives women a three day menstrual leave, um, you know, when they're like menstruating. Um, you know, or even the fight in the quest for against period poverty. Um, I think it's two in five women in the United States struggle to buy sanitary napkins, you know? And so I think that there's been, and obviously I think, you know, of, of the majority that has been us, you know, and then low income, you know, white individuals. So we haven't really supported women 
um, or prenatal services or care. I think in the ways in which we are, we should as a nation. Um, one of the things here in Connecticut, I think it's if you, I think prenatal care, we passed something in Connecticut. It happened before I came in and I, and I think it's like free. I think you have like access to free. It might be for immigrant women or, or something. I'm, I'm not saying this correctly, but we did something where we are giving women some form of prenatal service for free, um, um, free or very like super discounted. Um, and so those are things that I hope we begin to see across the nation instead of in anger. Like right now, the response is, oh, Roe versus Wade, we need to solidify abortion. But this is why I say the pro-choice platform really is just solidly pro-choice and not choices. Um, because right now we should be trying to solidify, um, uh, mass productions of formula. Cause it's interesting that the shortage is taking place right now as well. Um, childcare costs are extremely high, but like I said, it's, it's where our priorities are. And I, I've learned this too with politicians, but a lot of politicians think, um, especially those in leadership and those who don't financially struggle or think about struggling, um, they always, they often think about the right now. What do we do right now? What do we, you know, and the right now is always, the right now is never the generation after us who, who will one day be the right now, who are really the right now. Um, and so it's like, if I create this for those who are not of age to benefit from it yet, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing, you know, and that's something that I've, I've heard, um, you know, across the nation. So I think that's why we've done an extreme disservice to moms, to families. And what we have to understand is when we don't support moms, we're not supporting communities, nations, churches, businesses, schools, um, because that's what moms birth. Wow, that's good. I think you make a great point about some of our just short-sighted policy. Right. We, that, there's no there's no two ways about it. We have short sighted policy that wants to get as much money as we can out of something, be as efficient as we can on something now. Yeah. And even our supply chain issues that we're having today yeah. is because of short sighted policy from, you know, from years and years ago. Right. But, Chris, I know you have some other questions as well. Yeah, no, I was just uh, listening to uh, Representative McGee, how you were uh, speaking about the sort of a twisted thing in our politics. I, I, I call it what happens when our values come in conflict with our ideology. Uh, and I think it's one of the things that makes pro-life Democrats really important because, uh, you know, when you look at the abortion question, all of a sudden people on the left become libertarians, right? You know, you know, government has to get out and, you know, no place, you know, no room in the, and no space in the doctor's office for the government. Um, and then a lot of uh, really conservative economic folks are like, civil rights leaders uh, and, you know, standing up for the voiceless and um, those who cannot do for themselves. Uh, and there's, there's definitely a role for government to play in truly securing uh, the sanctity uh, of life and human flourishing from the womb to the tomb. Uh, have you seen that uh, political craziness? Uh, and, and how do we get people to, uh, on both sides of the aisle, be able to understand these points at which our values come in conflict with our ideology and maybe extend that a little bit further beyond, uh, you know, the abortion question to some other spaces so that some folks who maybe are, you know, pretty left on some things can understand that, hey, maybe there should be some limits on, you know, 
where government goes and what government does. Uh, and folks who consider themselves more conservative can begin to approach, hey, maybe there are some things that government can and should do uh, to help people out uh, as we try to live uh, a, a good and flourishing life. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I share this a lot, but whatever the government funds, they can ultimately regulate. If they fund it, they can regulate it. They can control it. They can say, we're going to pull back from it or put into it. I think it's 73% of abortions are paid through Medicaid in the state of Connecticut, which is our taxpayer dollars. And so at any point in time, if the state of Connecticut is like, you know what, this is actually what we want to do with this money, they can. And that's the side of it that I don't think people realize. I don't think people realize the millions of the millions of dollars that we pumped into the abortion industry. And very, you know, oftentimes and I, I've gotten emails from like women everywhere. And, you know, very rarely are these, there are a lot of times where these decisions are not just made between a doctor and a woman. Um, I mean, I've heard women be pressured into abortions after deciding not to. I, the state of Connecticut doesn't have parental notification laws. So I hear terrible stories about children. Um, and, and so I think, uh, <clears throat> that has become, it's, it's just false. It's not, it's, it's untrue. Um, there are many instances where these decisions are not made between just a doctor and, and, and now in Connecticut, you could not be a doctor. So a nurse or a physician's assistant, you know, in a patient, um, I think, and, and, and even having this discussion with some of my constituents, I had a constituent say to me, you know, if you're driving the robber, you're just as guilty as the robber. So you are who you associate with as far as my, you know, where I am. And I said, I understand that. But, you know, if I could say to you, if you're driving the Republican car and your Republican robber gets out to, you know, you're just as guilty. Neither one of these parties are closer to Jesus. We have to be. Um, and ultimately, we are really the third. We're the third party. We're the third column um, because they're two wings of the same bird, you know, which is oftentimes why I vote. I just vote what I believe. I don't vote Democrat. I don't vote Republican. I vote what I feel, believe and what's best for my district. Um, and I think there's a clash because some of these things have ser sincerely, they've seriously become idols where it matters more to us, you know, whether we toe the line than actually doing what's right. And I think people get caught up and they forget what's right. And that has become subjective, right? Like doing what's right has become subjective. Like, no, murder's wrong. No, stealing's wrong. You know, no, cheating's wrong. Violence is wrong, you know, but we've compromised. We've made things nuanced that aren't, you know, and I think because of that, um, then, then something like abortion comes up and we can't have a nuanced conversation. People are extremely intolerant and it's, oh, you're anti-choice, you know? And so I think, you know, the, the reality is, is, when we are in these spaces and we, when we don't show allegiance, when we are who we are and when we don't have pockets of allies, right? Of course we have supporters and we have communities around us because I have, I, I, I have some Catholics who are like, we're voting for you. And then I have some like racial justice, like proud to be black people, like voting, you know, for me. And so when we're in these different spaces, I think the integrity is, is I do what I'm, I, you know, I have convictions, I have morals and values, and I also just do what's right. And I think that there are 
so many political leaders across the country that are really standing on that platform, that are really standing on what's right and trying to maintain that platform and not compromise it. Um, because when we get caught up in the political right, the political left, the extreme right, the extreme left, that's at that point, they become idols and they're like altars and they're things that people, that people are more committed to than, than God. Um, you know, I, I, it was, um, I heard it, it was on the view. I don't understand Republic, black Republicans aren't, I don't understand Latin Republicans. And I was offended by that, (laughs) um, because that's part of the issue is that we can't, we can't be all of these different things. And that's who we are, people. We are the foundation of this entire world. We knew what the people look like in the Bible. Everyone ultimately comes from us. And so to say that we are one way is unfair. When we, goodness knows, when we birth different colors, you know, when we are just the root of music and art and dance and poetry and theology and so many different things. And so to me, it's, it's, it's unfair to say, I don't understand this and I don't understand that, but that's the turn that a lot of politics has become. As a woman, you can't vote this way. As a man, you can't vote this way instead of vote what you believe, vote your conscience, make an informative vote. And and, and mixed in that, at the root of that is God, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is that's why good. I appreciate a good swing state. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. I mean, I think what we just heard Representative McGee say is your party affiliation should not be a part of your identity. I just saw somebody on Twitter say something like, you know, now that all the Democrats in the Senate have voted for, except one, have voted for, you know, this abortion law to codify Roe, um, being being a Democrat should be part of, should be dealt with by church discipline, right? Basically, to be a Democrat is to be, is a violation of, um, of church doctrine. Uh, and, and that's I think we would all agree that's just going too far. You know, we three happen to be Democrats, but I can tell you and you've all heard today and before none of us is that part of our identity. No, none of us give somebody credit just for being a Democrat. Right. That happens to be where we are. So part of it's strategic. Part of it can be other things and, and agreements and disagreements. But it should never be part of our identity. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The And Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast uh, this has been an excellent discussion. Um, I knew coming into this that uh, State Representative uh, Trinae McGee was was brilliant. 
was courageous and knew that she was doing good work. But I think she's shown us today just how thoughtful she is on these issues. And we are blessed to be in this conversation with her. I want to take this a little bit different direction. Same same uh, uh, topic, but maybe just a little bit broader. After Dobbs was leaked, uh, we all know that there were folks who went to the houses of Supreme Court justices and protested. Uh, anybody who's been listening to the AND campaign knows that the AND campaign is supports protests. Uh, we think that you can be uh, redemptive as you protest. And in fact, that sometimes you need to be disruptive. Uh, God, you know, if you look in Isaiah 59, God actually has a problem with us not disrupting immoral and uh, unjust situations, which to me, you know, protests would fit within, you know, a situation where you need to be disruptive. But we talked about in our book, too, that there are still some bounds when it comes to um, protest. Chris, I want you to talk about a little bit about your perspective. And there may be some disagreement here. I, I welcome it. Uh, talk a little bit about your perspective on protest and whether or not folks should be protesting private residences. I'd love to hear your opinion. I think that people have to be really thoughtful and strategic about how uh, and where you protest and, and what you're getting out of protest. Um, I don't necessarily come to uh, to protest with this idea that one cannot ever at any point for any reason protest a private residence. Um, if I were involved in organizing those types of things, I think you would really want to take into consideration uh, who this person is, where their residence is, and who else is going to be impacted by the protest, um, and then what you're going to get out of it. Um, I think when you factor those things in, you usually end up with, with protests that's meaningful, right? I think that if you're going to protest... In, in my view, and the, the whole meaning of your protest is to is just to express your displeasure, uh, then that protest is not necessarily redemptive, I would say, uh, because it's not effective and it's not going to promote change. And so I think that any protest action that you're going to take is going to cost somebody something. It's going to cost a protester something. It's going to trust the target of that protest or something. It's going to cost uh, some collateral folks something. And what I always try to do uh, as an organizer uh, is make sure that whatever is being lost, right, and, and something is being lost, I can articulate why it's worth it, um, is going to affect some particular change uh, in, in a demonstrative way. And so that's sort of the framework that I come at. And, and I think that people who go and protest uh, right now at Supreme Court justice homes uh, and their private residences need to weigh through all of those things and you know come to a conclusion about if you really think you're going to be changing something or if you're just uh, been disruptive for uh, for no reason. So what, what I try to apply to protest is be effective and be redemptive. Um, and it kind of keeps it within bounds. So, so what I think I'm hearing from you is you don't you don't have a bright line rule that says absolutely categorically you cannot go to a private residence. Uh, however, it's possible that going to somebody's private residence, especially if it's a, a Supreme Court justice, might be counterproductive. Is, is that what I'm hearing? Pretty much. That's that's what I'm saying. I don't have a bright line rule. Um, I'll, I'll be honest here. I've, I've been involved with protests uh, around private residences. 
Um, most of the time, it has to do with the fact that the neighbors are not aware of what the, the person who is in their community representing their community, their neighborhood, uh, and the neighbors are not aware of what the person is doing. Uh, I certainly don't think that applies in the case of a Supreme Court justice. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of where I come from. No, I, I appreciate that. I mean, my general rule, especially when it comes in this context, when it's a Supreme Court justice or a politician, right, an elected official, is number one, I think it's usually counterproductive. Because if you if, if somebody's about to make a decision or cast a vote and you go to their home, unless you're intimidating them, and, and here's the, the here's the other side of it. So you have the practical side. I think it's I, I think it's counterproductive usually because all you're doing is making the person mad. Right. I mean, if they're about to make a vote or make a decision, you're probably only making them mad to come to your house. So it's counterproductive. But the other side of it to me, the ethical side is it seems if it's not aimed at the neighbors, if it's aimed at the person, their children, their home, all that, it seems possibly like a threat. And if it's not a threat, you do have somewhere you can go right in in front of the you know, in front of the courthouse or wherever where you can have that protest. If you can protest there and people know exactly what you're talking about and know exactly what your message is and you're still going to get coverage. Going to the house only to me adds a threat to it. Now, again, I may not put a bright line rule on. I have to think through. But as a general matter, if you have somewhere else you can go, that it's clear what you're protesting to take it to the House of Supreme Court justice to me seems like a threat. And if that's the case, it, it is out of line to me. I like the example that you gave because it may be a little bit different on a case by case basis. But elected officials, Supreme Court justices or whoever, judges in general are different because that's not really supposed to be part of the the, the political process in that way anyway. Right. You're, you're not supposed to be impacting how a judge says this or that. And, and you know, be, me being an attorney, I, I take that very, very seriously. So I would say when it comes to justice and thing like that, that's a no, no. Um but I love, Trinae, I'd love to hear what you think just about protests in general. You don't necessarily have to weigh in on this, but just about how protests can be redemptive from a Christian point of view. So I think protests are awesome. <laughs> um, I think back to the documentary that I saw. Um, it was the the Children's March of Montgomery, Alabama, I think it was. And one of the moms had told the, the daughter, because this, this, like, this was the jumpstart to the civil rights movement. One of the moms had told the daughter, stay away from the protest. It's dangerous. And she said, well, mom, I'm not going to the protest. I'm going to church. And her mom said, okay. But <laughs> what she didn't know was that the church was the meeting place for the protest. So the kids would go to the church in the church and they would exit out the back and they were bussed from the church to the protest. And this sparked the attention from the president and, you know, obviously Dr. King had commended them for their work. And so that's just kind of an example on how we've always been at the, at the, you know, that's been the core of our, of our, of our, um, even our places of worship. Um, and we've seen a lot of turnaround with protest. I think today protest, and this is, we, we talked about this even throughout the, the, the entire um, black lives matter, the moniker, you know, the, the different movements and how, um, one of the things that I, I realized was important is like, like, you know, faith in the works is that protesting is awesome, but it has to be followed up with conversation, action and legislation. Um, and, and in doing so, then we see effective returns. And so for me, when I heard about the protests outside of the justices homes, 
Um, you know, I just kind of wondered how effective they were going to be. Um, because I think even in protest, there should be a strategy and a strong purpose. Now we know what the purpose is. It's obviously to protest against what people feel is coming. Um, but I just, I guess for me, I, I think that the civil rights movement and even the protests that have followed as of recently have been extremely effective. And I think it's encouraged people in positions of policy. Um, I'm not sure outside of being really angry. Um, I'm not sure how um, standing outside the justice's home is going to sway their decision. Um, I am just not a fan of standing out people's homes and outside people's homes and protesting. That's just me. Um, but I've, I've seen people do it and I've seen it be effective. And I think in depending on the context, it absolutely can. Um, but I would, I would rather maybe go to a place of work that I think is like, especially one that's political, especially one that's political. Um, obviously like a, like a city hall. Um, but personal residence, I would say no. Um, and only that's just because I, I really do think privacy is important. Um, but I get it, you know, I get it. And I get that protests are to, um, be a bit radical and, and to uh, start movement and create a little bit of a, uh, um, a conversation around something, which is why people hop on highways. So, yeah, I mean, I, I hope that was beneficial. It's kind of kind of everywhere, but yeah. no, that was good. I, I, I actually agree with you, and, and I think we're all close on this, right? I think we're I think we're all kind of saying that that probably wasn't a good strategy, and from an ethical point of view, it's questionable based questionable based on privacy and based on the potential threat there. Uh, Chris, I'll let you end this off, and then we'll get out of here. Yeah, no, I think there's a reason why these particular protests feel weird, um, because if you're if you're protesting, you're trying to bring sun sh- sunlight to something, right? Like that's one purpose of a protest. People don't know about it until you go to a place to highlight the fact that this is happening. You protest to you know uh, withhold something from. Uh, you know, an entity that they might want, you know, think about the spirit of a boycott. You know, people want you to spend money at that organization. We're going to withhold our spending uh, until you yield your, uh, you know, our demand. Um, and I, I could go through this. We'll do a different episode about protest. But there are a lot of reasons to protest. There are a lot of ways ethically, redemptively, strategically where protest makes sense. And I don't think that this falls into one of those categories. And I think that's why it feels weird to a lot of people. So there's no, there's no like rule, but I think it feels weird because those of us who have been involved with protests for a long time, just understand that this is not exactly what you're going for usually when you do a protest. Yeah. And for those of you that want to learn more about it, get the book, Compassion and Conviction. We got a whole chapter about protest, protest and advocacy and all that stuff. And so it provides a framework, a, a redemptive framework around what that should look like. Man, this was a really, really fun episode. Great interview. Um, I just want to thank you again, uh, State Representative uh, McGee. Thank you so much for being here with us, taking your time and just for your witness and how thoughtful you were. I think it's going to inspire a lot of people and give people new language and a new way of thinking about some of these issues. Anything you want to say before we get out of here? Thank you so much for having me. Um, this is definitely one of, definitely one of the highlights of um, my my year and political journey. Um, I'm I, Like I said, I am just grateful for the work that you guys do um, and immensely inspired by the Ant Campaign. So 
this this is like a it's like a little bit of a dream come true for me. Awesome, yeah. awesome. Well, thank you again for being with us. Uh, this was great. You know what it is, Ann Camp. There is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. We'll highlight you. Oh, Lord, I say kingdom.